services have fundamentally the same structure. They all have three blessings in the beginning. They have three blessings at the end. And on the holidays, there's typically one blessing in the middle. Blessing in the middle is known in the tradition as Kedushat Hayom, the blessing of the sanctity of the day. The holy days, call them holidays, the holy days have what's called Kedusha, they have sanctity. That's true of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, the Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot, Shmini, Atzeret. These all have Kedusha Tayom and of course Shabbat, the holiest day. And the middle blessing is Kedusha Tayom, one blessing. Sometimes it's longer, sometimes it's shorter. The exception is Rosh Hashanah. In Rosh Hashanah, there are actually three intermediate blessings, Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofarot. That's the exception to the rule. Three blessings, three themes. By the way, an interesting, uh, interesting point is that, you know, the Rambam famously wrote his, uh, his 13 uh, core beliefs of Judaism. The Animamin, which, you know, the uh, Yigdal basically is based on the um, Rambam's 13 principles of faith. The, there's another book um, called Sefer Ikarim, by a man named Yosef Albo, also a medieval. And he also discusses, he also puts forth that Judaism has sort of core, some core beliefs. And um, he says, instead of seeing it as 13, you can see it as three. There are three core beliefs of Judaism, he claims. Three ikrei hadat. One is the existence of God. One is what he calls sachar va'onesh, that people are held accountable for what they do punishment and reward. That's the second basic fundamental belief of Judaism as he sees Judaism. And the third basic belief of Judaism he claims is a revelation. Primary revelation being the Torah, but it's not only the Torah, the fact that God can be revealed to, uh, to, to the human being. That says Yosef Albo are the three basic beliefs of Judaism. Fundamentally, he thinks that the Ramam's 13 can be condensed more or less into the three. So that's Albo. But what's interesting is that he makes a comment in his introduction that these three beliefs, core beliefs of Judaism, he claims, are actually reflected in the service of Rosh Hashanah. Because the first blessing is Malkuyot, which is God's kingship. God's kingship presumes that God, there is a God who is king. The second theme of Zichronot, he says, is about punishment and reward. It's the day of judgment. God is judging. That's the second of his core beliefs. And the third core belief, he says, is revelation, which is the third blessing. That's the blessing we call Shofarot, which begins with the words, Atani Gweta, you revealed yourself at Har Sinai. That's how that blessing begins. The giving of the Torah being one manifestation of God's presence, not the only one. So Albo made the claim in Sefer Ikarim that there are three core beliefs. Again, we're not getting into this question about what does it mean, what the nature of the beliefs, what the belief entails, etc. What is the place of these of this credo or belief within the larger uh, the larger system or Judaism? All these interesting questions, but it is interesting that Abu made the claim that Malchiot, Zichrot, and Shofrot are reflective of sort of the core beliefs. And what I find very interesting is the following, just small observation about the service on Rosh Hashanah. And that's the following. The Rosh Hashanah service, 
let's say the Musaf service is the based upon three blessings at the beginning, three at the end. In the middle, there are three blessings, not one. So those are nine blessings altogether. But inserted into the Rosh Hashanah service, in terms of our common practice, so we traditional and even less traditional places, we add some poems into the service. The most famous poem that's added into the service, for the Ashkenazim anyway, is Unetane Tokev, a famous poem. No doubt one of the highlights of the service of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. But we have many other poems that are added. Now what's interesting of these poems or piyotim that are added, they're typically added, almost all of them, in one place in the service. And that is, the poems are typically added in the third blessing. The third blessing is called Kedushat Hashem, HaMelech HaKadosh. In that third blessing is the recitation of the, uh, of the Kedusha. So around the Kedusha, which is the praise of God by the angels and paralleled by the human praise, around the Kedusha, in that third blessing of HaMelech HaKadosh, we have all of these songs and all of these poems that are added. And different communities recite more, fewer or more of these piyutim. There is one exception to the rule. There's one of these poems actually that is added. There are a couple, but there's one main one that's added after, after we, in the third blessing, but not before we say Kedusha, but after we say Kedusha. So what is that poem that's recited in the third blessing, but after Kedusha? And not before Kedusha, exception to the rule. It's a poem that begins with the words, God holds the scale of justice in God's hands. And then it proceeds with an alphabetical poem, everybody believes. Now, typically when people tell me everybody believes or thinks so-and-so, I always say, are you sure everybody believes that? I'm quite sure it's not the case. But in any event, in the poem, the tagline is b'chol ma'minim. And I was always thinking that b'chol ma'minim, we all believe, is an introduction to Malchiot, Zichmonot, and, and, uh, and, and Shofot on Rosh Hashanah. It actually is an introduction to, one might say, what actually do we believe? Which is always a good question. But in the davening, at least, the Malchiot, Zichmonot, and Shofot do reflect this conception of that there is a God, and this is a God who is a judge, and this is a God who makes appearances throughout the world. So Vachom Aminim can be seen as introducing the point that Albo actually makes clear in his book, Sefer Ikarim, the book of basic beliefs, that Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofarot are in fact uh, the core beliefs. Um, in any event, okay, so I wanted to begin with that. Uh, let me let me pick up where we left off last week. We started last week with Malchiot. And last week, the point was that where do we recite Malchiot within the service? Because this is the core of the service. So the point of last week was that the claim I made, and others have made similar claims, is that Malchiot appears in two places in the Rosh Hashanah service. We're talking about the Musaf of Rosh Hashanah. The primary place it appears, of course, is in the central blessings. There are three blessings in the middle. Blessings number four, five, and six. Blessing four is Malchiot. Blessing five is Zichronot. Blessing six is Shofarot. 
That is certainly the case. We'll get we'll, we'll be discussing that uh, this morning for a bit. But prior to that, in the third blessing, which ends with the words Hamelech Hakadosh, what is known in the tradition as the blessing of Kiddushat Hashem, the sanctity of God's name, in that third blessing where we have all the poems, we also have a very beautiful uh, expansion of the davening, which begins with the words Uvachein Tein Pachtacha. Uvachein Tein Pachtacha essentially is seen by many. I myself suggested this many years ago as the Malchiot of the Tana in the Talmud, Yochanan ben Nuri. Because in, in the Gemara, there's a dispute about Malchiot. There's a dispute about Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofarot. Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofarot, the way it's structured is the following there's a, some kind of a statement that's made in the beginning, a long statement, followed by some kind of request. That's, that's the structure of Malchiot and Zichronot and Shofarot. That's point number one. But point number two is that in this statement, there are biblical verses that are cited. And it's all laid out by the Gemara in the Tractate of Rosh Hashanah. And the Gemara, according to the view of Rabbi Akiva that we follow, there are a total of minimally 10 verses. And Rabbi Akiva says the first three verses are from the Torah. The next three are from the so-called writings. For us, it's from the Psalms, the Tilim. The next three are from the prophetic writings. Then there's a 10th verse from the Torah. And that's what we have in our Malchiot, Sichronot, and Shofarot. We have a grand total of at least 10 verses, three from the Torah, three from the Psalms, three from the prophetic writings, and a 10th from the Torah. Now, just to make this clear, it's three, 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 and one. Now, why is it three, 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 and one? Why isn't it four, three, and three? Because the 10th verse is from the Torah and the first verse is from the Torah. So the simple answer is because the, each of these three sections has two parts. The first part is the statement. And at the end of it, there's some kind of request of God. In the Zichronot and Shofarot section, the 10th verse is found inside the request. And we'll see this, it's inside the request. Inside that paragraph is another verse that's cited. When it comes to Malchiot, it's very interesting that the, the 10th verse in Malchiot, which we'll get to soon, is not inside the body of the request, but immediately precedes it, immediately precedes it. So let's, before we get to that, let's just reflect for a moment on the fact that, um, that this is the way the service is set up. Um, it's set up in this way. And in, let's say, for example, in contrast to the service of uh, Yom Kippur. The service of Yom Kippur, which maybe we'll get to discuss next time, one more class, but service of Yom Kippur is totally different than Rosh Hashanah. The service of Rosh Hashanah, the main theme of Rosh Hashanah is the kingship of heaven, God's kingship. And all of that, what that implies is a good question, but that's the service of Rosh Hashanah. On Yom Kippur, the main emphasis on Yom Kippur, there were three main emphases on Yom Kippur. One is the request for forgiveness called Slichot. They're found in every prayer of Yom Kippur uh, in one form or another. Then there are the confessions, 
there are two confessions uh, in each of the Yom Kippur prayers. And then there's something else which is recited in the Musaf, sort of parallel to Malchiyot, Zichwanot, and Shokrot, which is recited in Musaf. That is the reenactment of the service of the, uh, of the, of the high priest. The Kohen Gadol is called the, uh, the Avoda. That's central to the Yom Kippur service. Actually, a reenactment of the service of the reenactment. We rarely have that. Almost never. We reenact the service. So the question is, what is the text of the Avoda? So there were many, there are many texts of the Avoda. The Ashkenazim today have one text, which is medieval, Amit's Koach. The Sephardim have a different text, Atakonanta, perhaps a bit earlier. Uh, but then there were other ancient texts written for the Avoda. And if you look at, for example, at a critical uh, master, say Goldschmidt's master, you'll see he has several of these Avodot that are written. And the earliest ones, and this is the important point, the earliest text of the Avoda is fundamentally uh, a uh, translation of the Mishnayot in Tractate Yoma. The Tractate of Yoma, which was first to Yom Kippur, is one of the tractates we have is Yoma. It consists of eight chapters. The first seven of which are a description of the service of the high priest on Yom Kippur, everything that went on in Yom Kippur. The eighth chapter is the observance of Yom Kippur today, the fasting, etc. But the first seven chapters describe the Avodah. The early texts of the Avodah that we recite are basically translations of the Mishnah. So here we have a very interesting phenomenon that on Rosh Hashanah, the currency, the text we have on Rosh Hashanah is biblical verses, Torah verses, Psalms, prophetic writings. But in Yom Kippur, the basic text is not words found in the Bible, not at all. The basic text on Yom Kippur is the Mishnah. So how, how do we understand that? What is that? What does that suggest to us in terms of the nature of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? Well, suggests on, Yom, on Rosh Hashanah, the subject of Rosh Hashanah is God. And we all know that we are, um, our tradition is very reluctant to speak of God, to describe God. There's always been a very strong position within our tradition, beginning with the Talmud, that the less you say about God, the better because since you can never fully describe God anyway, what you're going to say will always fall short of the mark. It's one of the reasons that we are hesitant to say much about God. And the other reason might be God is so mysterious and beyond our comprehension, that what's the point? Um, so on Rosh Hashanah, when we want to speak about God, the best thing we can do is use God's own words. So we use the biblical verses, which in one form or another are understood as some kind of revelation. It's God speaking about God, as it were. So we take the liberty to cite biblical verses. We don't want to have our own description. That's what Rosh Hashanah is about. Yom Kippur is not about God, fundamentally. Yom Kippur fundamentally is about us. It's about human possibility. It's about human transformation, human understanding, etc. So there, we take the liberty to use not the biblical verses, which are God's word, but rather to pick up on our words, human human wisdom. 
And human wisdom is, of course, one of the primary human texts in our tradition. Maybe the main human text of the oral tradition would be the Mishnah. So therefore, on Yom Kippur, we are reading, we are, um, we are essentially reading the Mishnah right smack in the middle of, this, of the Musaf service. That's called the Avodah. I would add to this, I don't want to get into this too deeply now, but there's actually something else, just to mention something about Yom Kippur, which has several very striking features to it. And one of the striking features of the Yom Kippur service is something that happens before Yom Kippur. And that is just prior to Yom Kippur beginning, we have this ceremony. where We have a kind of ceremonial annulment of vows that were taken in the previous year. It's known in our tradition as the Kol Nidre service, right? The most popular service of the Jewish people. More people show up for Kol Nidre than any other service. Um, and what's very strange is people are, you know, very emotional about Kol Nidre. It's a ceremonial annulment of vows. So what is that about, actually? What is, what is it? It's a kind of hatarat nedarim, but in a ceremonial form. Chazen gets up, there's Sifrei Torah. There's a convening of a ceremonial court. And they make the announcement that kol nidre, that the vows that were taken, vows, oaths, etc., are are null and void. What is that all about? So just to make one comment about it, then we'll get back to Rosh Hashanah. And that is that the annulment of vows, the idea that you made a vow or an oath, an oath is something you take in God's name. A vow may not mention God's name explicitly. However we define oaths and vows, but essentially it's the human being accepting upon himself, herself, some additional responsibility, some additional prohibition, etc. And then you realize that you took a vow and you can't, you can't fulfill it. It becomes onerous. It's too difficult. You hadn't anticipated all the side effects, all the situations that might put you in, etc. So then the mission, the mission says you go to the court, you explain to the court that you thought you could do it, but you can't. And the court hears you and the court says, okay, we, we, we have annulled the vow. And this law, we, we, you are forgiven. The vow is annulled. So the Mishnah comments famously, the, the very idea of annulling vows, says the Mishnah, Tractate Chagiga, is floating in the air and has no basis. And that is to say, when you read the Bible, it's clear that when you take a vow or an oath, you have to keep it. And we don't have a situation, we have only one situation where someone took a vow, an oath, and didn't keep it. And in that case, he intended to keep it, but the people stop him from keeping it. And that's the, the, the oath that King Saul took, Shaul HaMelech took, whoever eats on the day of battle will be, will, be, will be put to death. And his son, Jonathan, didn't know about it. And he's in the forest of honey. And he, dips his, his staff into the honey and tastes it. And they tell him, your father had taken an oath. He knows nothing about it. And then King Saul discovers that Jonathan has taken an oath. He says, what can I do? Jonathan must die. But the people refuse to, what? How could he die? He's responsible for the victory. And the people stop Saul from killing Jonathan. That's the only example we have of somebody that took, takes an oath and doesn't fulfill it. In the Bible, you take an oath, even under mistaken circumstances, you fulfill the oath. But the rabbinic understanding is no. The court has the right to annul the vows. So 
is the primary example of the ability of the rabbinic tradition, the oral Torah of the human being to overturn God's word. And that's how we start Yom Kippur. That's the power of it. Because what is the message? The message, the court gets up and says, we, we, we are forgiving. What does that mean? It means it's in our hands. That's how you, that's, you enter into Yom Kippur with an understanding that it's possible, that repentance is possible. You know, last night, by the way, so we said Slichot last night. And uh, the first night of Slichot, in many communities, it's a very big deal. And what's interesting is, each of, every time we say Slichot, there's one main penitential prayer. On the night of, first night of Slichot, the main penitential prayer begins with the words, We have started, we have come forward, come forth, right after Shabbat has ended. We're not waiting around. Right after Shabbat's over, prior to Rosh Hashanah, we have said Slichot. When you read that poem, it's very interesting. And this is a very worthwhile thing to do in general. And this is not a difficult poem. Some of, this, some of the poems are incredibly hard to understand. This is an easy one. And there's one main theme within the slicha that we said last night, of the Motsa'e Menucha. What is the main theme? Anybody know what the, the main idea of the slichos, the first night of, uh, the first night of slichot? The, the Motsa'e Shabbat, the Saturday night, this, year, this week is two Saturday nights before Rosh Hashanah, but typically it's the Saturday night before Rosh Hashanah. And what is the main theme of it? it repeat several times within this poem, several times. So the theme is, I'll tell you what it is. Theme is encapsulated Tarem Nisecha, Mafli Pla'ot. The theme of Srichot, the first night, is that forgiveness is a, uh, is a miracle. It's miraculous. Now, why is forgiveness miraculous? That's how we start Srichot. It talks about God's miracles. God is mafli, God doesn't seen. God does miracles and wonders. Because in point of fact, actually, what the Srichot is saying is the obvious truth. How can you change the past? You, you, you did what you did. Okay, you feel bad about it. Um, okay, I'm sorry you feel bad about it. It's good you feel bad about it, actually, but how does that change reality? You can't really change the past. So how do you, for the most part, you can't change it. What happened, happened. You can learn from it, you can move forward. But how do you achieve forgiveness? So that's the, that's how we start Srichot, with the recognition that, you know, you can say you're sorry and all that, and it may ch change something in yourself, but it doesn't really change the objective reality at all. So therefore we implore God. So forgiveness is a miracle. Forgiveness is a, an act of grace, I would say. And that's the theme, and you, won't, you, you can open up your Srichot book and you read it and you'll see straight out, it's very clear. In a word, that's what it's about. That's how we start Srichot. So basically, you're starting Yom Kippur, by the court saying, you know, we have this ability. It's a miracle. We have the ability to forgive. We are forgiving, says the court, 
And then we sum it up the verse, Moses implores God for forgiveness. And God, I forgive as you say. And the Kol Nidre service means as the court says. The court says, Venisla, we are forgiving, says God, I agree. But that means it's up to us. So it really puts us on the spot. Listen, it's up to you. If you want to move forward, go ahead. If you don't want to move forward, it's not going to happen. So that at least is the is the thinking or the the I say the the message as we begin Yom Kippur. It's more complicated than that. And maybe next time we meet about Yom Kippur, I'll talk about that. Because it is more complicated, because there are multiple messages on Yom Kippur. But that's one of them. And that's important to think, to realize we have the ability to do something. Because if you really feel you can't do it, then often you in fact, can't do it. That's Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah is different. Rosh Hashanah is not about forgiveness directly. There's no confessions. There's no penitential prayers. God's kingship. So therefore, in talking about God, we use God's words, which is the Bible, the Torah, the Psalms, and the prophetic writings. Okay, just wanted to add that point. Before we continue with Malchiot, I hope we get to Malchiot. I have several other things to say about it, but let me um, stop here for a moment to take any comments or questions. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is uh, uh, Kol Nidre. So my understanding, uh, Judy Bardak, um, I live in Pittsburgh now, I was ordained at the Academy for Jewish Religion. Uh, but uh, just, I just want to clarify this because you're my ultimate authority. And that is the, uh, the Kol Nidre, the nullification of vows. My understanding was it it came about, it was a rabbinic uh, rule, uh, thing, it was rabbinic law, but it came about because of forced conversions during the Middle Ages. Is that true or is that not true? Was it earlier than that? Yes, it's much earlier Am I than making that. sense? You're making complete sense. And what you're saying okay. probably is, tr it may be true that that, gave additional meaning to it, but the Kornidre service precedes the Inquisitions. It's way before that. So that's really not the power of it. I mean, there's no question that that probably played into it, but I believe what I said is, it's an explanation. Is it 100%? Am I sure? Not 100%, but I think the power of it is this idea that we can actually be forgiven and that we can actually be central in, in, in in, in forgiveness, our appointed leaders, we appoint this court, and the court says, Venislach, and God says, that we have this ability, which is the frame of mind entering into Yom Kippur. As I said, we'll deal with this when we get to Yom Kippur in more depth, I hope. Um, okay, let me now start with the service of Malchiot. And in, in doing so, of course, there are these digressions, but their digressions are important because they do tell us something about the service. The problem with Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur service is, and for many people, is that it's so complicated. There's so many other things that are thrown in. It's very easy to lose sight of what is essential. So Rosh Hashanah, what's essential is two things. There's the Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofarot, and the Shofar. That is classically what's at the heart of Rosh Hashanah. I mean, there are poems, things that we add, which are very powerful and very meaningful to us, but they're not part of the fundamental structure of the, of the service. So let's talk about Malchiot. 
and where Malchiyot begin. So first of all, let me just say that Malchiyot, Zichrot, and Shofot are recited in the, in the additional service, in the Musaf service. Now the Musaf service typically, as the word suggests, the additional service, we say Musaf on those days where they would bring an, an, an additional sacrifice. There were days in the Torah list, the days on which additional sacrifices are brought. For the most part, these are holy days, Shabbat, Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot, Shemini, Atzeret, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. There's one day that's not a holy day for us, but they did have an additional sacrifice, and that's Rosh Chodesh. So Rosh Chodesh is also, we have a Musaf prayer. So the Musaf prayer consists of the way it's structured for us. It's, it, the Musaf prayer lists the sacrifices that were brought on that day. And of course, it makes the claim that we are all desirous of reinstituting the sacrificial service whether we are or not, but we enter into the uh, prayer with that idea in mind. And that's what the Musaf is. Um, it's introduced by a paragraph, which is very interesting, but the paragraph that's recited on all the holy days, except for Shabbat, is the idea of that the temple was destroyed on account of our sins. And we hope that we will be able to um, be forgiven to rebuild the temple and to bring the sacrifices. The exception to the rule is Shabbat. On Shabbat, the paragraph does not mention sin. Tikanto Shabbat, Watsito Karbonotela, Shabbat does not mention sin. But all the other, all the festivals, all of them, Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, they all talk, all introduce the sacrificial service with mention of, of temple being destroyed because of sin and Rosh Chodesh also is mentioned. And that's a very interesting side point. It means that every holiday has a theme of forgiveness, not just Yom Kippur, not just Rosh Hashanah. Every single festival as part of the theme is actually sin on one hand and forgiveness on the other, except for Shabbat. The theme of sin is, is far into Shabbat. There is no theme of sin and, and forgiveness on Shabbat, which is very striking. That's a different conversation. Anyway, my point is this that you have the Musaf sacrificial service described, and then you have Malchiyot, Zichronot, and Shofarot in addition, in addition to that. So the way it works is that in the Musaf of Rosh Hashanah, for example, <clears throat> you start with the sacrificial service, but in that very blessing of the sacrificial service and enumerating the sacrifices, we say Malchiyot as well. Now, where does Malchiot begin? This is a very interesting question. So in Malchiot, let's see, after we have the mentioning of the sacrifices, you have a machsa, you can see it. We have to put the machsa up. And after this, after the sacrificial sacrifices are sacrifices are, are mentioned, the sacrifices, the additions, yes, right there. Stop right there, you got it. Yes, stop right there, exactly. And the paragraph afterwards, here it says, Musaf, first day of Rosh Hashanah, Malchiyot, in big letters too, big print. And the next thing is, Oleinu Lushabeach. Now the question is, is this accurate? Big print or not, is it accurate? Probably in my view and others, it's not precise. Because Oleinu Lushabeach, really doesn't begin Malchiot. Oleinu Lishabeach 
I would say, is, is the introduction to Malchiot, but not Malchiot itself. Now, I'll say a few words about that, but what, what, what suggests to us that Olenu Lishabeach, which primarily is it's one of the great prayers, and it's recited on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and it's a really has a solemn, it has a solemn nusach. Um, but it actually introduces Malach. And of course, some of the prayers that were written for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur that are recited in Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, they become very important to us and they begin, they become recited all the days of the year. And when they're recited every day of the year, they typically lose their lose a sense of their great significance and the great power. But I say Olenu Lishabeach is not Malchiot, actually, but introduction to Malchiot. I think that's a better formulation. Why do I say this? And I'll tell you why. Because in Rosh Hashanah, as is the case in the Amidot in general, typically, this is the silent prayer. These prayers are recited silently. And then the, we repeat, we repeat the Amidah, and when the Chazan repeats the Amidah, we add all kinds of other things into the Amidah, all kinds of poems, piyutim, the works. So when the Chazan repeats the Amidah, is this from the, is this the, um, I, let me ask you, is this, is this from the repetition of the Amidah or is this from the silent Amidah, Maxine? We'll scroll down a little, we'll see. Scroll down, scroll down, scroll down, more. Stop, stop. yes, this is from the repetition. Keep, scroll back. After a little more, a little more, a little more, a little more. Stop, stop. No, you pass it. Back up. Stop, stop. Afterwards, afterwards. Let me just say the purpose of these classes is to help us with the doc, get some sense of the structure. There's a prayer and a very beautiful one. This is a prayer that the prayer leader, the Chazan says, God and God of our fathers, God of our ancestors, be with the mouths of those who have been sent by your people, the house of Israel. So the Chazan is talking about himself, essentially, right? The Chazan is saying, I've been sent to be a Chazan. And, uh, and basically, right, you have to teach us what to say. right? Etc. It goes on. You can go go more. Scroll down a little bit more, right? It goes on and on. Go on some more, right? People are fixed on them. Their eyes look going to you, right? They approach the ark. People surround them like a wall. You look down upon them with compassion. Their eyes lift to heaven, etc. Keep reading a little more. They shouldn't stammer with their tongues. The chazan refers to the chazan. Not become entangled in their speech. It should not bring disgrace to the multitude. The chazan says, I don't want to, I want to be a good chazan. I don't want to bring disgrace, right? May the chazan always say words that are according to your will. Then it goes to the end. One, scroll down a bit, right? A little more. Right? Those that you have right? compassion to those, stop. Those that you have compassion, uh, scroll back up a little bit, stop. You passed it already. It's down. A little more. Two lines. That's it. Right? Let them not be ashamed through me, etc. This is the Chazan's prayer. What is the Chazan doing over here? 
The Chazan is asking permission to pray. It's permission. Chazan says, I'm about to pray. I don't want to mess up over here. I don't want to be a bad, I'm a messenger of the, of the, of the, of the, of the, of the people. I'm a shaliach tzibur. I'm a shaliach. I'm a messenger. Please help me out over here. I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't pray poorly. I'm representing the community. That's a request to pray. So one of the interesting features of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur is the Chazan on several occasions is asking permission to pray. Now let's scroll down to the next thing. What's next? Stop. New paragraph, a new poem. I hope in the Almighty, I implore God's presence. I ask God to grant me eloquent speech in the congregation of the people that I might sing of God's might. The arrangement of thoughts belong to human, but only from God, scroll down, only from God comes eloquent speech. Keep going. My master opened my lips and my mouth shall declare your praise. May the words of my mouth be acceptable before you, God, my rock and my redeemer. What is that paragraph? What is the Chazan doing over here? Answer, asking permission to pray. So one question could be, why does the Chazan ask permission to pray twice? Davening once. Why are there two requests to pray? There are two requests to pray. You ever wonder about that? Chazan added two Mishriot over here, back to back. Let me just say a couple of words about the request to pray. The Chazan's about to pray. Now, first of all, this is not before the Chazan starts the Amida. On Yom Kippur, by the time you get here, the Chazan's been davening for an hour and a half. The Sanetokef, you name it, the Kedusha, Homa, the works. What are you asking permission to pray? You've been praying for the last hour or so. What, what? That's one question. Why, why ask permission to pray here? That's number one. But number two, why is that? Why are there two of them? Actually, so let me say something about that. First, why are there two? There don't have to be two. But the two of them strike me as very different. First of all, of the two of them, one of them is the main request to pray, and one is secondary. The main request to pray. I'm talking about the Ashkenazic right now. The Sfaradim may have a different, different way of doing it. But the Ashkenazic, the main request to pray is the second paragraph, which begins with the words and you know that because of the Nusuch. The Nusuch, the Rashut, the request to pray has a particular tune to it in the davening Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. It's and Rebbe Chaim says, That's the request to pray. The same thing in the Shacharit. Yoreiti bivstoti siachrat. Yoreiti bivstoti siachriyashchil. It's the same tune. So the main request is Ochila. Ochilael. What's interesting is the first request, which is very beautiful, for whatever reason we say both, and it strikes me that the two requests are very different. The second request, which I think is very appropriate for Rosh Hashanah, says nothing about requesting of God anything, right? Open my lips, my mouth will declare your praise. It talks about the Chazin is about to praise God. 
which is very appropriate for Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofarot. That's the second request. The first request talks about imploring God. Rachum v'chanun. Ki chanunecho Hashem elokeinu heima chanunin. Umuruchamecho heima muruchamim. Rachum v'chanun are the two key words of the Yom Kippur Davening. They're the attributes of God's mercy. Hashem Hashem ke rachum v'chanun. That's what Yom Kippur is about. Slicha. So the first, the first long reshut is one that's appropriate for, for Yom Kippur when you're asking for forgiveness. The second one is more appropriate for Rosh Hashanah. The fact that we have included both, I don't know why. You know, many decisions about the master of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur were made by the, uh, by the uh, printer. Printer makes many decisions for us. What, it, what the printer includes, what the printer doesn't include, big print, small print, whatever. But it could be in this case that the reason we say both is that even though Rosh Hashanah is primarily about proclaiming God's kingship, but we have to remember that God's kingship means God is the judge. And that's when we start praying because we're being judged. So it could be that both are appropriate, both the wrong Rishut. But why is there Rishut and why here altogether? So I want to say two things about the Chazim asking permission to pray. I mean, part of it could be simply, it's a very weighty day and the Chazim feels inadequate to the task. Everybody's inadequate to the task of representing the community and asking God's forgiveness. But there is actually another reason for it, which is the following. We have to remember that for many, many hundreds of years, up until maybe the eighth century, as far as we can tell, there were no prayer books. And even after the eighth century, basically prayer was something that people said by heart. And when it came to Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, most people did not know the, did not know the davening. How would they, it's complicated, long davening. The Chazim would have to study it and would say the, would pray for the community. So therefore, it's specifically Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur where the Chazan has permission to pray, because there the Chazan feels that the Chazan is actually uh, allowing everybody to fulfill their obligation, being motzi, as we say, the, 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 uh, the, the community. What's interesting is I wanted to make a different point over here, which I may have mentioned, but I'll mention it again. And that is that the Chazan asked permission to pray here before Malchiot, Malchiot, Sichronot, and Shofarot. And this lends credence to the position that on Rosh Hashanah, the Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofarot were recited only by the Chazan. The, the, the community, when they had the silent prayer, they didn't have these nine blessings. Because on Rosh Hashanah itself, all the other prayers of Rosh Hashanah have only seven blessings, which is very strange. Rosh Hashanah is the only holiday that we have in which in one of the services, there are nine blessings, and all the other services, there are seven. So the argument has been made by many that the community, the people said that one normal seven, one, one short blessing in the middle. Only the Chazan says Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofrot, and therefore the Chazan has permission. It's permission to pray the Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofrot, which only the Chazan is saying, and which we are being fulfilling our obligation by hearing the Chazan. In any event, this is what we have. So this is a feature of the Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur service, the Rishut. Now, when does the Chazan ask permission to pray? After Oleinu Shabeach. First, the Chazan says Oleinu. Then the Chazan asks permission to daven. 
right? So that would suggest to us very strongly that Malchiot does not begin with Ovenu Lishabeah. Malchiot begins with what we call the second paragraph of Ovenu, which is God, we are hoping that your kingship will be, will be realized throughout the world. The first paragraph of Ovenu Lishabeah is a different point. Before we start, we have an obligation, Ovenu Lishabeah, to the master of all. And what's interesting is that that first paragraph of Olenu, which is very powerful, it sees a world in which God is uh, acclaimed by all. And the very end of the first paragraph is a verse. The verse says, Emet Malkenu God is real. Emet means real. God is real. There's nothing else. As it says in the Torah. And we cite a, a verse from the Torah. From the book of Dvarim, you should know and take to heart that, that this God, your God, is God of heaven and the God of earth. There is none other. So, what's interesting is that the first paragraph of Oledu, at the end of it, we cite a, a, a verse from the Torah. But the verse from the Torah, unlike all the other verses we recite in the Malchiot section, does not contain the word Melech. All the verses in Malchiot have the word Melech, without exception. Well, there's one exception we'll get to, but all of them have the word with one exception, which does not. But here, this verse does not have the word Melech in it. So it would strongly suggest to us that this is not, technically speaking, part of Malchiot, but rather, an intro before we even say anything, we recognize our own responsibility. And the God of whom we speak is the God of heaven and the God of earth. There is none other. Okay. Now, let's get to the Malchiot here. So the Malchiot, as I said, consists of a set of biblical verses and begins with what we call the second paragraph of the Oleinu. Here we have a theme that we'll repeat later on. We therefore hope, we are praying, we are hoping that we will soon see your majestic glory. That you will remove all idols from the world, destroy the idols. Here we have the word tikkun olam. Actually, in some of the other manuscripts, it's with takein with a cuff, to establish, to establish God's kingship on earth. God's kingship on earth. And the wicked will turn to God. The, the, all, all the other people will cry out in your name, etc. This is this picture that we have that someday God, everybody will accept God's kingship. As it says in your Torah, and now we begin at the end of this paragraph to recite the biblical verses. And the first verse is Hashem Yimroh Yolam Vaed. Hashem Yimroch Yoram Vaed. That's the first verse, right? Kakatubo, um, it's right there. Hashem Yimroch. Now, the question is when, you, when, you, when we look at our service, it's always important to find where the verse is from. So, Hashem Yimroch Yoram Vaed is found it's towards the very end of Shiratayam, the Song of the Sea. The verse there, the context is God, we say, God, bring us across the, 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 the river, bring us across the water. And you will establish, you will set us up and establish us and plant us 
in your holy mountain, Machon Lushiftecha, the place of your dwelling, Mikdash Hashem Koronidecha, the temple that your hands will build. Hashem Yimroch Yovam Ba'ed, God will reign forever. So the context of it is the building of God's temple. And God's temple, God's palace, God's palace on earth, God's kingdom on earth. God's kingdom on earth in the soul of the sea is related to God's temple on earth. Hashem yimloch And that actually is a central theme, a central thought and a central theme of the Rosh Hashanah service. God's kingdom on earth. There is the heavenly, there's God in the heavens. Jacob has saw the ladder in the heavens. Angels going up and down the ladder, that's God's temple above. That's the heavenly Jerusalem. And Jacob promises to build earthly Jerusalem. So that's the first verse over here. And now, according to the instructions given by the Talmud, we have three verses from the Torah, and they have to contain the word Melech. So the next two verses contain the word Melech. We scroll down a little, the Neymar, and now we have another verse. This is taken from the prophecy of Bilam, right? God is said, Bilam, God is with his people. Utruat Melech Bo. Here they translate, the love of the king is among them, the trua. The love of the king is, that's Rashi's interpretation, that trua means re'uot, love. Rashi said it. Could mean the sound of the horn, the sound of the king is amongst them. Here they translate, the love of the king. And then the third verse, Bahibishun Melech. This is from the blessing of Moshe in Zotah Bracha. And God was king in Yeshurun with the gathering of the heads of the people, the tribes of Israel were, were, were united. So the text interprets, Vahibi Shurun Melech refer to God. These are the three Torah verses, okay? So as if it's saying God shall reign eternal, but God has already been present amongst Israel. That's uh, Bilam's prophecy. And then Moshe says, when all the people gather together, the Yeshurun, Shurun is Israel. When the people gather together, come together, they proclaim God is king. These are the three first three verses, all taken from the Torah, all have the word Melech. Now remember, in each of the sections, there are 10 verses. So there's three, 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 and one. So let's now find the one. What is the fourth verse that has that is speaks of God's kingship from the Torah? First three are from the Torah, next three are from the prophets, the, the Psalms, then the Prophets. And then we have one from the tenth verse from the Torah. Now, where is the tenth verse? Let's scroll ahead and find the tenth verse from the Torah. Now, Divrei Kachacha is the Psalms. Go ahead. Your holy writings is the Psalms. Keep going down. Dei Avodecha Nevi'im is the prophetic writings. Now, stop. Uvatatit. Uvatoratcha Katuv Leimar. Shema Yisrael. Hashem Elokeinu. Hashem Echad. Here we have two problems. First of all, it doesn't have the word melech. Let's start with that. The Talmud is clear that you have to have the word melech. We don't have the word melech over here. Now, there's a good reason we don't have the word melech. You know what the reason is? It's a very simple reason, actually. If you think too deeply, you won't get it. So, it's because there is no other verse in the Bible that has the word melech referring to God as king, outside of the three that are cited. So therefore, we are stuck. So therefore, we have to import a different verse, 
that doesn't have the word melech, that has the theme of God's kinship, and that is the um, Shema Yisrael, which the Mishnah calls, what is the mitzvah of the Shema? How does the Mishnah define Shema? What do, what do we do when we say Shema? Kabbalat o malchut shamayim, the acceptance of the yoke of heaven. O malchut shamayim. So Shema is, is defined by the Mishnah. The recitation of the Shema is accepting God's kinship. So we understand that Shema doesn't have the word melech, but it's good enough because it has the idea of melech. Let me just digress for one minute and make the following observation. You know, it's true that Shema does not have the word melech in it. And what choice do they have? So they go to second best and take the Shema. But you have to remember that these rules, for example, that you need the word melech, the rabbis made them up. The rules are, are essentially created by, by, by the rabbis. So when they created these rules, all the rules about which, which, which verses are good enough for Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofarot. We get to Zichronot, hope we get there, we'll see that these rules are, you know, the rabbis have certain rules, and, but, the, but the, those who create, who wrote the prayers, didn't always follow exactly the rules. So my point is that one could make the argument, I would make the argument, that it was set up in such a way, Shema is not, what could we do? We need to import the Shema. I would say that the Shema probably was central to the thinking of those who set up the prayers. They understand very well that if you require the word Melech, you only have three. But they knew that to begin with. And nonetheless, with Torah Tchakotur Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. That's the first point. But the second point is something very interesting, which is the following. In the structure of the Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofarot, the 10th verse from the Torah is always embedded in the, in, the, in, the, in the paragraph we make a request. So for example, Shema is the exception. This Malchiot is the exception. Because Shema Yisrael is recited before the request. The request is the next word. So, what's our request? Reign over the whole world in your glory. On and on. Very beautiful prayer. The key word in the prayer, by the way, is the little word call, all. Reign over the whole world, all of it. Universal. But the point is, but the Shema is not in the middle of the paragraph. The Shema precedes the paragraph. In the Zichronot and Shofarot, it's in the middle. And the reason for that, I think, is that the request is God reign over the whole world. But we, we don't think we can make that request. I'm praying for you to do, do something. You should do this, you know? And then, you know, and you say to me, I should do that. Let me ask you a question. Do you do it? Before you give me all your lectures, what I should be doing, what are you doing? So before we tell the whole world to accept God's kingship, it's inappropriate unless we first say, you know something, we, we are accepting the kingship of heaven, which is the Shema. Kabbalat al-Malchut Shamayim. So the Shema Yisrael actually precedes, precedes the 
the request that God should reign over the whole world. And I would say it's exactly parallel to the first two paragraphs of the Oleinu uh, Ishabeah. The first paragraph is Oleinu Ishabeah. We have the obligation to praise. We accept God's kingship. Okay, then the next, we do it. Then the second paragraph, we hope others will as well. The, the, the wicked ones, the idols, the weak ones, the powerful kings, the arrogant ones, the world. Okay, but first we started by saying, we have to. We have to take it to heart. We have to consider it. So that's essentially the Shema. Interesting is, I want to make a different point about the Shema, and I'll stop and take comments and questions, then we can start with Zip or no. I don't know how much time we have. We don't have a clock here, but um, how much time do we have? What time is it now? We just double check. Oh, we have about 15 minutes. Yeah, only 15 minutes. Okay, let me just let me, let me make one. I mean, Malchiot is the central theme of Rosh Hashanah. Let me make a different point about the Shema. The Shema is here, the Shema is about accepting God's kingship. In fact, one could read the Shema this way, Shema Yisrael, understand, perceive, O Israel. Doesn't mean to hear, it means to understand. Understand, Hashem Elokeinu, this Hashem, the eternal one that is our God, Hashem Echad will someday be, 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 be accepted. The very, very words of the Shema can be read this way. The Hashem who is ours today, we, are, we accept it. And our prayer is that someday it will be recognized by all. So what's interesting is that the Shema is connected, the idea of accepting God's kingship is connected to actually establishing God's kingdom on earth. God's kingdom on earth, the representation of God's kingdom on earth is God's palace, is God's house. And we call what we call the, the, the Beit HaMikdash, the earthly temple, right? The sacred space on earth. And what's interesting is that when the Shema is recited, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, and you open up the Torah, the next verse is, Hashem Elokecha, but we, as uh, instructed by our rabbinic tradition, interrupt the words of the Torah. We don't simply, the Shema is a recitation from the Torah, but we interrupt the recitation from the Torah after we say Shema. And before we continue with the next verse, Be'ahavta, to love God with all our soul, all our heart, all our means, we say something else. Baruch Shem Kavod Malchuto Liogam Ba'ed. What does that mean? Baruch Shem Kavod Malchuto Liogam Ba'ed. What does it mean, Shem Kavod Malchuto? Say it all the time. Baruch Shem Kavod Malchuto Liogam Ba'ed. So the word shame, shame means name. Shame means name. But the word shame, Shin Mem, a two letter word in the Bible, often refers to God's presence to God's temple. Actually, that's how the Torah described the temple. That's the Torah's definition of temple. It's the place in which God's name is there. It's the place that we can relate to God. God is ineffable, God is beyond, but God is also present. So God's presence, we call the temple. So therefore, Baruch Shem Kavod Mahuto Yolam Ed, blessed is God's, the name of God's kingship, which means God's temple, is a response. And actually, many of the academics believe, and I 
think it's right, that Baruch Shem Kavod Malchato initially was simply a response. The Chazmi would say the Shema, and the people would respond. Baruch Shem Kavod Malchato Yalom Ba'ed. And this accounts for something else that's very interesting in terms of our prayer service. Very strange. And that is when the Shema is recited in the morning, before the, before the silent prayer, when the Shema is recited in the morning, the three paragraphs, in the first blessing of the Shema, we introduce something which seems completely alien to the Shema. What do we say in the first blessing of the Shema? We say Kedusha. Kadosh, 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 Hashem Tzvaot, Merol Haaretz Kvodo, Yofanim V'chayot HaKodesh, right? Kedusha is the Kabbalat the acceptance of God's kingship by, by the angels. That's recited in the first blessing of the Shema. So obviously, those who set up the prayers for us understood that the Shema itself is an acceptance of God's kingship and related to God's kingship on earth. Because the Kedusha is the parallel between God's kingship in heaven and the kingship on earth. So the recitation of the Shema was actually connected to the Kedusha. And I would add something else, that on the, on the, on the, on the, on the holy days, in the Musaf service, we say Shema inside the, inside the, uh, inside the uh, Kedusha, right? In Kedusha on Shabbat, in Musaf, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, and then we say, the last three words of the Shema. So in a sense, we said the whole Shema. It starts with Shema Yisrael, and we say it in the Kedusha. Yes, I'm familiar with the, with the theory that the, the gods came around and the Jews couldn't say Shema in the morning because the, the census would come by and they would check. So we had to wait till Musaf. Somehow they always left before Musaf. I don't know why these, why these people always left before Musaf. If I were a censor, if I were a god, I would have stayed for the Musaf because then you have Kiddush afterwards. So I don't know why they, uh, why they left before Musaf. So this is, I don't, I don't buy, I mean, there may be some truth to it. I, never, I think it may be, if it's, if it's true, it's not sufficient. Our tradition did not see Shema and Kedusha as two antithetical things. Our tradition sees Shema and Kedusha are deeply connected. And the best proof is we say Kedusha in the first blessing of the Shema. And the idea then is the kingship, the kingship of heaven, that's where the angels praise. But there's a kingship to heaven, but there's the earthly king, kingdom. And our job is to build the earthly kingdom. So the Shema Yisrael, I don't think was a, what can we do? We have no Melech. No, the Shema Yisrael is here for a good reason. And it precedes the request, which is that all should, be cognizant of God's kingship, but we ever take the first step. So that's the first blessing. And of course, there's more to say here, but just to scroll down, and this is the, of course, the, uh, just scroll down some more, and then keep going, right? Stop, you passed it. Go back up a little, back up, back, 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 back. Yeah, stop, yeah, right there. Baruch Hashem, the blessing, is Melech HaKol Aretz, Mekadesh Yisrael V'yom HaZikaron. God is king of the earth, who sanctifies Israel and the day of remembrance. Rosh Hashanah in the davening is called Yom HaZikaron. So we are combining Malchiot with the blessing of the day, which can mean only one thing. At the core idea of Rosh Hashanah is God's kingship. And if we ask ourselves the question, 
what does that mean for us that we proclaim God king? What does that, what does that suggest? So I mentioned this last time, it suggests many things, but one of them is to see ourselves differently in this world. It's not our world. We are strangers and sojourners in God's world who put it to serve and to do God's bidding, right? As it says in the prophetic writings, Isaiah said it, I created all for my own, for my own glory. That's the half Torah for the, for, the, for, the, for the first parish of the Torah, Bereshit. It's for me, says God. You are here to, 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 to be Mekadesh, my, me, and sanctify my name through your behavior. You bring, you bring credit and glory to God. That's the theme of Rosh Hashanah. And it invites us to see ourselves walking in this world in a, in a different way, I think, than we typically see ourselves. Okay, so I took more time than I thought it would take from Malchiot. Let me say a few words about, but before I say a few words about Zichronov, I'll take some comments or questions at this point. And then we'll have a few minutes to talk briefly about Zichronov. Yeah. Yes. You know, when you speak about that's really the, uh, the chazan uh, asking for permission and to be heard for the community. Yes. And when he, he finishes with that's something we always say. And I think that is his personal prayer that his davening for, for himself or whatever will be heard. First, it's, it's that he be heard for the community and but he ends as we always do that, that God hear us. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me say two things to you, Tova, two things. First of all, not only does he say the last verse that he always says, but the verse before that is Hashem So that's the first thing we say before we pray. So right. actually he's saying both the first and the last things that we always say in the Amidah. That's right. one thing. Let me say something else to you, which is the following thought. Many years ago, before 9-11, I was in flying uh, for some reason, some conference down in Texas. And it was pouring like crazy, terrible weather, thunder, lightning. And uh, I actually walked in, I think Dvaro was with me, we're together. We walked into the cockpit, believe it or not. Walked right into the cockpit, the pilot was there. Different world. And I said, um, he said to me, I said, uh, you're gonna fly? This, he says, I'm gonna wait. I said, I'm really glad because we got a, we got a plane load of people. And he said to me something I never forgot. He says, forget about the people. I'm, I'm worried about myself. And that to me was very important. I was very happy to hear it. And I think on Rosh Hashanah, what I'm saying is, there's the, the chazan is, we in the community, the chazan is hopefully bringing our prayers and getting us to think more deeply in, in such a way that, but the chazan prays for the chazan. I mean, and that's a very important point. And I think that being able to connect one's own situation this is not so simple, but being able to connect one's own situation to the larger situation. I remember hearing recently of one of the great Rebbe's, I think one of the Mudjitsa Rebbe's actually, who composes all these beautiful Nigunim. I'll get to that at the end of the session. I want to talk about that. But that he, 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 could, he, he they're living in extremely difficult times. This is, let's say, 1919. Jews are displaced like crazy. There's all kinds of terrible stuff going on. For him personally, and for, and for the, his community and the Jewish community. And the idea that he, in his own prayers, 
he sees his own suffering, but he also see, he feels the suffering of, of other people. And he's able to connect that. He's able to connect his own suffering to the larger suffering, to see himself as part of something bigger than himself, which doesn't negate the fact that he's also a person. He's praying for himself. I think that's one of the, uh, one of the, you know, one of the uh, very important uh, elements of, of, of leading the service, having this sense of responsibility, but also a sense that we, we're all individual people. We also have our own service, you know, everybody has their own story. So that I think is important. So it, it is uh, quite conceivably true what you're saying that Hashem is what we everybody says when they begin and end, which is very striking. That's how the Dochilo actually uh, ends. So it's it's an excellent point of really of somehow of connecting those two elements. Of, and that's it, leading the service is not a simple matter. Um, especially in places uh, where the key, where the where the people who are who are in the in the synagogue are not, are not familiar with the prayers at all. Maybe they're less observant, maybe they pray less often. And the leader is trying to, whether it's the chazan, the rabbi, he's trying to teach people, well, but Satan wants to daven. It's often, I think, some kind of tension between your own prayer on one hand and being a prayer leader on, on the other. But the point is very well taken. Thank you. I, I think we have, I'm sorry, but I think we have the same thing in the Shema Yisrael. Shema Yisrael is, is God is our king. Israel, right. we acknowledge, but he's universal. Right, that's true. There's always the tension between, you know, our own. I mean, in general, in in, in Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur really has much more of a universal element in the text than we typically have. The typical uh, Amida is very focused on. I mean, there were, there were statements there about the world as well, but in Rosh Hashanah, it's much more. You know, Malocha Kolalam Kula Bichodecha. Right. So it's, you know, it, it's it's the same kind of we're thinking about ourselves and our own needs, which is completely justifiable and maybe even positive in a real sense of positive, you know. Um, and then there is the the world in which we find ourselves and the different sets of communities in which we find ourselves. I, I the think it's it, how, it, how, how to be cognizant of that as well even as we're thinking about our own situation. So that's- right. Acknowledgement also, I think. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's something which is basic to prayer, I think, and feel it very strongly on, on Rosh Hashanah. Um, okay, let me, um, we don't have that much time, unfortunately, now. Um, maybe in Yom Kippur, next to the last session, about Yom Kippur, I will try to bring in some of the Rosh Hashanah themes because there is the theme of request on Rosh Hashanah as well. The shofar is both, the, the plain sound we call the tekiah, and there's also the broken sound. So the broken sound is understood by our tradition to be a cry. So that we are crying on Rosh Hashanah, but we're crying in response to something. I would say we, 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 we suddenly find ourselves standing before a king who's also a judge. That's the zikro note. And we see ourselves as unprepared for this, uh, for the judgment. And we suddenly realize that we don't even know what to say. We don't have the words. So the shofar is basically a very deep prayer. We don't yet have the words. We have a sense. Sometimes, you know, sometimes, sometimes I feel that something's not right. You ask me what's wrong. I can't even, I don't know exactly what's wrong, but I have a, a bad feeling. I have a, 
very anxious about something. So that, you know, and that you begin to think about what could it be, et cetera. And that's the sense I think on Rosh Hashanah, we don't yet have it all, hasn't been thought through yet. Um, as much as preparation we've done, but, but not at the end, Yom Kippur is different, the end of the 10 days. Yom Kippur is the end of the cycle. We've had time to think about it, to, to formulate it. But on Rosh Hashanah, I think, so there is the cry, there is the prayer, but it's not, not yet formulated. So maybe next time we'll have an opportunity to get to the remembrances to the after see because it's limited time. Um, I did want to mention one thing in terms of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, that uh, we've been working at Risha to produce a, um, a series of podcasts on the text of the service and the and uh, and the nigunim coming out of the the, the Hasidic world. There were six six of these altogether, um, three of Rosh Hashanah and three Yom Kippur. Uh, a lot of the music, uh, some music may be familiar to some of you. Uh, uh, most of it, I think, will not be. Uh, some of these uh, nigunim are quite stunning, and they're performed very well. So I'm hopefully you all get a chance to hear them, and I think it really um, it sort of, I think, uh, can add meaning uh, to, the, to the service and really to begin to think about more deeply, what is this, what is this really about? Um, I think it is- Rabbi, how do you well. get to hear them? How do you access these? So there are gonna be many ways to access. It's gonna be the email. And then about five or six different platforms, which this is not my area of expertise. I think Spotify is one of them, YouTube is one, about six of them. Okay. And I would, by the way, I would ask you if you hear it and you like it, to pass it on to, uh, pass it on to some, to some, uh, some people you think would appreciate it. Um, spent a fair amount of time on it. We have four. It's just, it's just instrumental. It's those down the road. We hope to have some, some, some choral stuff as well. Uh, it's, there are four uh, performers and uh, solos, duets, and trios. Um, so it's um, yes. No one could have just put something up. An email will go out at 4 p.m. Eastern. Um, okay, so that's, I'm looking forward to myself to, to it come, being released. And uh, again, if there are any questions about this, please, my email is dsoberatrisha.org. Feel free to email me. Um, I wish everybody a Shana uh, Tova. I think we meet one time after Rosh Hashanah between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur to um, look at the Yom Kippur service again. It's just, you know, there's so much more here, but um, hopefully this will be helpful at least to- Rabbi, I don't see where the Yom Kippur, uh, this, I don't see it. I'm, I'm scrolling through all your offerings. Next, when it'll be two, two Sundays, no? Next Sunday is Erev Rosh Hashanah, two Sundays from today. Two Sundays from today and it's yeah. a part Same of- time. Okay. Thank right. you. Same two okay. from today. Okay, I think it's October 2nd, if I remember. Um, okay. Okay, then. Thank you all for participating. And uh, once again, Shana Tova, Kriva Vachatima Tova. Shana Tova, from Tel Aviv. Oh, good. Nice to hear your voice. Shana Tova, Matuka. Shana Tova. Thank you for everything. Thank you very much, Kriva Vachatima Tova. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Silver, and thank you for everyone uh, here for being part of our learning community. Now, uh, there's more programming going on, so if you can't get enough of Divine Judgment, 
Um, we have a class at 1 p.m. Eastern today with uh, Dr. Yael Ziegler, tracing the movement from Tisha B'Av to Rosh Hashanah through readings in Isaiah. And at 2.30 p.m., uh, Rabbi Levi Morrow will be continuing his exploration of fear and its potential religious utility. Uh, this week, we have 10 different classes. And as we said before, um, the Music and Liturgy Project will be premiering at 4 p.m. And uh, you can be one of the first to listen on uh, Facebook or YouTube and then on other platforms later. Um, and as always, you can learn more and register for the remaining um, Elosman offerings at elul.drisha.org. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, are, are, how quickly do the lectures get put onto your library, the recordings of the lectures? Um, that would be a good question for Noah. Our library is currently down. Um, so you can get the recordings for classes instantly on Facebook. Um, you don't need an account to watch them. They're organized by class. So if you need a link directly to a particular class, we're happy to send that to you. Email us at inquiry at drisha.org and we'll get that right to you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.